0: You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. I think encryption is a core aspect of maintaining privacy and freedom of expression and can help be foundational to democracies.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the Cyberwire's law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co host, Ben Yellen from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hi, Dave. On this week's show, I've got a story about Congress struggling to define acts of war in cyberspace. Ben has Apple's response to the DOJ and their request to unlock another iPhone. And later in the show, my conversation with Andrea Little Limbago. She is the chief social scientist at Virtru. She's going to be speaking at the the upcoming RSA conference on the global battle against encryption and that is the focus of our chat. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms/fedcyber. That's aka.ms/fedcyber. And we are back. Ben, I'm going to start things off for us this week. Uh, this is a story from the Hill, uh, written by Maggie Miller and Laura Kelly. It's titled "Congress Struggles on Rules for Cyber Warfare with Iran. I think perhaps iran is is the catalyst for this conversation, but I think it speaks to a broader issue of the fuzziness when it comes to both establishing what the rules of cyber warfare are and the desire to establish what the rules of cyber warfare are for a lot of different reasons. This story specifically uh, goes into uh, Senator Ron Johnson, who's a Republican from Wisconsin along with Senator Gary Peters. He's a Democrat also on the Senate Homeland Security Committee. They are taking a look at this and trying to decide whether or not they need to take a deeper look or or explore setting what some of the rules should be here. What are some of the details here, Ben? Can you sort of uh, lay this out for us? Sure. So you're exactly
2: right that the last couple of weeks in terms of our unrest, if you will, with the nation state of Iran... Really is the catalyst for this renewed conversation about what constitutes cyber warfare. And the question is important for a couple of reasons. One, We need to know whether we're at war because, you know, that triggers a whole bunch of legal implications. Hmm. There are a lot of powers the government has during a state of war, whatever that state of war is. And, you know, certainly that's something that Congress wants to define. And then there are, of course, rules of engagement. Um, And that applies to both federal law and international law, what we're allowed to do as a kinetic response to some sort of cyber attack. Hmm. And it's hard to define because I think, Partially, there's a failure of imagination. It's very easy for us to conceptualize, to picture conventional warfare. Yeah, when there are tanks sitting on your border, you kind of know what you're dealing with. Exactly. When there are tanks and bombs, when buildings are destroyed, when there Mm -hmm. are casualties, when there are planes in the sky. Cyber warfare is very different. And it's difficult even for policymakers who are well-versed in these issues to picture exactly what constitutes warfare. One of the suggestions here from Senator Johnson, uh, which I think is, you know, a good starting point is to focus on attacks on critical infrastructure. So cyber attacks against our water systems, our electrical systems, our information security systems. One reason I think that's a good place to start is that's the closest digital analog to targets of war that you would see in conventional warfare. Oftentimes in conventional warfare, a strategy is to destroy infrastructure. And so I think that can certainly be analogized to what a cyber attack against critical infrastructure would be. Hmm. And I think, you know, in terms of imagining what the consequences were, what type of event would really trigger us to act as if we're at war uh, with an adversary. It would be something that destroys our electrical system, that cuts off cellular phone service to people, that hampers our water utility for some reason. I think because the consequences of those actions are so severe, that's sort of where policymakers are leaning in terms of coming up with that definition. But as this article says and as, as you laid out, they're having a hard time defining that exactly. And because, of course, this is Congress, they first have to have an argument about who gets to make the decision.
1: (laughs) Uh, So we all agree it needs to be done. And now let's fight about process. (laughs) (laughs) Let's punt it over to the
2: Pentagon. Right. (laughs) So the Department of Defense has taken an increased role as it relates to cybersecurity and cyber preparedness. Yeah. uh, Pentagon back in 2018 elevated U.S. Cyber Command to what's known as Combatant Command. Hmm. Uh, So that certainly raised the profile of cyber insidiousness as it relates to our national defense. So Senator Blumenthal, who's on the same Senate Homeland Security Committee, he's a Democrat from Connecticut, suggested that this really is the prerogative of the Department of Defense. They're the ones who should be defining this policy. Congress certainly has a role, particularly when it comes to oversight. It would be the Department of Defense that would develop the policy and it would be Congress that figures out whether that policy is workable that analyzes what the consequences would be of having that particular definition of cyber warfare. But the Pentagon has not done that uh, up to this point. And I think there's sort of a renewed effort in light of this threat from Iran to know exactly what constitutes cyber warfare, what the rules of engagement are, because, and I know this this sounds like hyperbole, but it's not if we're going to enter in some some sort of cyber conflict, it's when.
1: How much of this is a perception, correctly or otherwise, and and I'm coming down uh, perhaps on the side of it being incorrect, that that cyber is its own thing separate from other types of warfare? In other words, if I have tanks hurling ordnance at you versus dropping it out of airplanes, your buildings are still blowing up. Right. And I wouldn't say I've one is war and one one is is war war. and is not because of where it's coming from. The damage is the damage. I was having a conversation with one of my cyberwar colleagues and we were talking about the Sony breach. Uh And suppose North Korea had snuck into Sony in the middle of the night when no one was there. So there'd be no human, you know, no casualties and and had burned down all the, the filing cabinets. And we knew it was North Korea. Right. Would that be an act of war? Right. I mean, you know. I, th- I completely
2: see what you're getting at. Yeah. Uh, it's not the mode of the attack, it's the consequences. And when we're talking about things like interrupting air traffic control centers, which would potentially cause planes to fall out of the
1: sky. Right. Turning off the lights or the power, which could cause people to die from medical situations, you know, all, all sorts of Absolutely, When the consequences
2: are potentially as severe as conventional warfare, then I think we need to treat the problem as if it were conventional warfare. I favor that kind of consequence-based approach. Now, that doesn't Hmm. work in all circumstances, because whether we're talking about cyber warfare or all other areas of cyber law and policy, there are going to be some things where you can't quite analogize it to the physical world, you know? A lot of policymakers would prefer to simply use tort law to govern data breaches. Hmm. But I think through additional research, and through experience, a lot of us have realized that those types of, you know, 18th century tort principles are not always going to be applicable. Mm-hmm. And I think that's true when we're talking about cyber warfare. Um, that's something that policymakers need to consider. But from a broader standpoint, that's why I think starting the conversation around critical infrastructure is so important, because that's largely what conventional warfare is about. It's destroying our physical capital and our human capital. And cyber attacks certainly have the potential to do the same.
1: Yeah. It's also it seems to me like there's a part of this fuzziness comes because in the cyber domain there's some fuzziness between an attack and espionage. Right. right? And 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 there's a different response. There's a different understanding. There's a different agreement when it comes to espionage versus warfare. Yeah. And that exists in the physical
2: world, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are statutes dealing with with espionage. Now, the consequences of being a spy inside the United States on behalf of a foreign government or being a spy on behalf of a foreign government in the United States as a United States citizen are very severe. Uh, but it's a distinct area of the law from you know, the laws of of war and the laws of armed conflict. Right. And I think you could apply those same principles here, largely because we're talking about the difference in consequences. An attack, if it's going to be defined the way it seems like lawmakers want to define it, are going to be, attacks are going to be defined by their consequences. So if somebody is, for lack of a better word, loitering in our cyber world, Mm -hmm. but not actually causing any overt damage, physical or otherwise, then... That's more on the espionage side. Mm -hmm. Uh, But if they are disrupting our critical infrastructure, our power grids, our water systems, and you have an actual tangible impact on living human beings, that becomes something different entirely.
1: Yeah. And it's worth noting that there's nothing that says that a cyber attack requires a cyber response. If someone turned off our lights with cyber, we could respond with Cruise missiles. Right. Especially if it was a nation state like Iran.
2: I mean, it it becomes more difficult and more nebulous when we're dealing with either lone wolf actors or terror groups that aren't necessarily associated with nation states. Oh, yeah. yeah. But yeah, I mean, there are circumstances where it would probably look a lot like conventional warfare. We would deploy weapons. We would probably deploy cyber weapons, but we would also deploy conventional weapons. Mm Because we're the United States, uh, <laughs>
1: that, that's, <laughs> that's we, the area where we have
2: asymmetry. <laughs> and we sure do, uh, you <laughs> right, know. And right. I think it's up to these lawmakers to make sure that that asymmetry continues in the realm of cybersecurity. And we're certainly not there yet, largely because the problem is w- relatively young, but we haven't had that national consciousness to determine that. The threat of cyber attacks is a real problem that requires the proverbial Manhattan Project solution. Oh, yeah. So that's an interesting way to think about it. And unfortunately, it may take some catastrophic incident to actually raise that level of public consciousness. Mm -hmm. Power went out in my house a couple of weeks ago in the middle of the night. Oh, yeah. And just because I'm a nerd about all this stuff, I'm like, huh. What if this is a (laughs) cyber attack against our critical infrastructure from some nation state?
1: Right. Right. I fell asleep and the power came
2: back on in 20 minutes. But,
1: you know. (laughs) All right. Something that we'll track. I think it's it's an interesting area, no doubt at all. That is my story this week. Ben, what do you have? So the crypto wars
2: are back and the actors are slightly changed, but largely the same. Yeah. Uh, So there was this incident back in December at a naval base in Florida. It was a mass shooting. A Mm -hmm. gunman murdered three people, injured eight others at this naval base. Yeah. The Department of Justice, led by Attorney General Barr, requested a bunch of information from Apple because the alleged perpetrators were using Apple devices. Mm -hmm. And Apple responded lawfully. They complied with the requested subpoenas and handed over information. It turns out that one of the devices that was relevant to this investigation was locked. So this is the same problem we had with the San Bernardino shooter. Mm -hmm. On-device encryption. So all of the data on the device is encrypted. Exactly. So Attorney General Barr personally asked Apple and its CEO, Tim Cook, to decrypt the device and renewed their policy agenda, the policy push for tech companies to have these so-called backdoors, a method of decryption that's available only to the government in these types of circumstances. Mm -hmm. Apple responded with a very lengthy letter. It's a compelling letter. As I sort of joked to you before this podcast started, it's basically... 500 words of saying F you
1: in the most polite way possible to the Department of Justice. Yeah, that's
2: exactly what it was. Now, their <laughs> response was much more nuanced, but that's sort of the general tone I got right. from it.
1: That's your professional analysis, my professional yes. opinion. <laughs> um, okay. So they reject
2: the first characterization. In Attorney General Barr's request was that Apple had not been forthcoming and handing over information. Hmm. And Tim Cook says, we've complied with all of the subpoenas that you've issued. We've handed over troves of information related to the suspect what do you want stop bothering us the second part of of attorney general barr's request is this request to unlock the device and to that tim cook responded uh, with a position that he said since he's been the ceo of apple that these so-called encryption backdoors are dangerous they could be made available to malicious actors. They're not safe for users. There's mm-hmm. no
1: such thing as a backdoor just for the good guys, in his words. Well, Apple's making the case that they can't unlock this phone, that they don't have access to this encrypted data because they don't have a backdoor because they don't they, they not don't want a backdoor, that backdoor to exist.
2: Right. So yeah, then we're back into the territory we were back in 2015 where... The Department of Justice would have to go to court to get Apple to break their own encryption, Mm -hmm. um, which was the nature of that dispute that never actually got resolved because it turns out the FBI in that case was able to access. They went to somebody else. They went to somebody else. They found another vendor. But, you know, I think if the attorney general thinks that it is in the national interest to pursue that litigation, Despite Apple's middle finger letter that they sent back to the Department of Justice, we could be back in court and perhaps this issue could be settled in this case. I think from Apple's perspective, they think encryption is important not just for user security, but also our national security Mm -hmm. uh, to protect our information from malicious actors, whether they be terrorists or Iranian nationals or North Koreans. And I think you sort of fight fire with fire. If it's the Department of Justice saying we need access to this particular device in the name of public safety, Apple comes back and says, well, in the name of public safety, I don't think that we can create this backdoor Mm -hmm. uh, to break our own encryption system. And uh, this is just sort of a, a stalemate that's going to continue for a while.
1: Mm-hmm. We spoke with former uh, Secretary of Homeland Security, Michael Chertoff, about this. And he came down on the side that it's not worth it, that encryption's too important. The the upsides to encryption on devices are more important than the access that law enforcement would have if they had some sort of backdoor. Right. That was our first aha moment on the Caveat podcast uh, <laughs> when
2: f- former Secretary Chertoff said that. I mean, yeah. it was... Interesting to hear from somebody who not only was our Secretary of Homeland Security during a very dangerous time for our country, Mm -hmm. but as someone who's who's been a professional in the field for a generation and somebody who you'd think would be partial to law enforcement having served in government. Right. You know, I would also note that this is not a partisan issue. This request that the attorney general is making here is. Almost analogous to the request that the Obama administration and its FBI made in the 2015 case. Hmm. So it's more of an an institutional concern within the Department of Justice. One thing, sort of interesting nugget about this story is that the president found out about it. So we did get a presidential tweet asking for Hmm. Apple to decrypt the device. Um, It was in the tone of, we've done your company a lot of favors. Uh, One thing you can do for us is to protect our safety and security by unlocking the device. Our transactional president. Yes. Uh, So, you know, that might add a new level of publicity and, and urgency to the case. But... Based on the tone of this letter, Apple is not going to back down. I mean, I think this is their most closely held principle as it relates to encryption, that they are not going to create this backdoor. They're not going to jeopardize users' data, and they're not going to jeopardize our national security.
1: Mm. All right. Well, again, another one that uh, we will continue to follow. Uh, Maybe we'll get some legal resolution on this. mm, Uh, mm -hmm. That would be nice for us. All right. Well, uh, the listener on the line segment of our show actually has the week off this week. I've decided to give it the week off. Uh, (laughs) But that doesn't mean that we don't want you to call in with your question. Our caveat call in number is 410-618-3720. You can also email us at caveat at the cyberwire.com. The best thing you can do is send us an audio file with your question, but also if you want to send us a question, you can do that as well. And perhaps we will use your question on the air. Coming up next, my interview with Andrea Little-Limbago. She is the Chief Social Scientist at Vertru, and we are going to be discussing her upcoming RSA conference presentation about the global battle against encryption. But first, a word from our sponsors. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust And we are back. Ben uh, recently had a really interesting conversation with Andrea Little-Limbago. As I mentioned before, she is chief social scientist at Virtru. You want to talk about somebody who knows her policy stuff. That's Andrea. Always an interesting conversation with her. Like I said, she's giving a a talk at the RSA conference, which is the big uh, cyber conference coming up. In um, my
2: hometown of San Francisco. In San
1: Francisco. Yep. And uh, the topic of her talk is the global battle against encryption. And that is where our conversation was centered. Here's my talk with Andrea Little-Limbago. Can you describe to us, the, how's the global community addressing encryption?
0: It's interesting. I think it's along the lines of a spectrum with some extremes. And when I, when I start talking about this, usually within our industry, like, well, you know, the crypto wars have been going on forever. Uh, and I, so I think it's important to note that this time is different. You know, exactly for the question that you asked, is that the global environment is very different now than it was during the crypto wars about two decades ago. And so what's going on now is that governments are actually passing legislation to basically require backdoors into encryption. And and whatever that means, it means a variety of things, depending on the various country and the governments. But the overarching goal is for government mandated access to data when they want it. And so Australia passed a law uh, almost a year ago, actually exactly a year ago right now, exactly for that purpose. And what I think the core difference is when we talk about countries wanting to weaken encryption, we often think about. The usual authoritarian suspects like your China and Russia and uh, you know, Kazakhstan is one that always you know, pops up. And they absolutely are. And they're contributing and uh, helping export that kind of model. But it's starting to diffuse into democracies as well. And that's where I think it's most concerning. Uh, obviously, we don't want it to be happening anywhere. We, I, mean, I think encryption is a core aspect of maintaining privacy and freedom of expression and can help be foundational to democracies. But you know, the fact that it is growing into, spreading into, into democracies and this debate just continues even within high levels of leadership now within the United States and uh, Canada as well. I mean, you know, India is discussing these kind of laws as well. So it's really it's a trend that's going on globally for the sake of government mandated access to data under the auspices of national security.
1: Can you walk us through the Australian example? I mean, what, what led them to this point and how are they implementing it?
0: So it's interesting, you know, about a year and a half ago, I think it was the late summer of about 2018, uh, the Five Eyes government, so the Five Eyes in, in national security jargon are going to be the US, Canada, uh, UK, Australia, New Zealand, I think I got all five there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> basically, we released a joint statement, coming to a, a joint conclusion that governments should have access to encrypted data when they need to for national security purposes. And across each of them, initially, I think over the last few years, the link has more so been to terrorism and to, to try. And the argument has been that governments are basically, there's a, a black area where they have no access to data due to encryption. And so leveraging that, they can pull some cases to highlight how, how well how they had access to this encrypted data. They may have been able to dismantle a, a terrorist group easier or stop a terrorist attack. And so those have been the, the guiding arguments for a while. And so those continued on. And you know, Australia really was the one that started taking the lead following that 5i statement that was released. And they passed the telecommunications and other legislation amendment about a year ago, and so it required government access when they want it. So it's mandated. Probably the most infamous quote that has come from that was that uh, you know one of the one of their politicians noted that the laws of mathematics come second to the laws of the land. And right. So for any any mathematician, you know, it's like no, no, that's actually yeah. not true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that's not I mean, how math works. <laughs> I was I was gonna get
1: to that because I saw you know that we had the recent hearings on the Hill here oh. in the in the states. And one of the reactions I saw was along those same lines, yeah. as someone said that it's an attempt to legislate math,
0: exactly. which,
1: but it's an important point. So from a practical point of view, how is it playing out in Australia it, being a player on the global stage? How are they seeing these mandates through and still functioning?
0: You know, a quick plug for the RSA talk. So my co-presenter with me uh, will be Leslie Seebeck, who leads the, she's the first executive director of the Australian National University's Cyber Program. Mm. And so she has been deeply in the weeds in that. So she would answer it much more thoroughly than I have as she is living and breathing it right now. I I don't actually know how many, whether it's actually even been implemented yet. I haven't heard of any major cases yet, which doesn't mean that it hasn't happened. It may not have just made our way over. But at the same time, because of it, companies actually, there has been enough, of an outcry and discussion among the private sector that companies are considering leaving Australia due to this. And hmm. so made, I mean they've got major tech companies like Atlassian and, and, and some others that have noted that this is going to weaken their ability to provide the services that they need to do for their customer base. And so it is having an impact in that regard. You know, honestly, it's so similar to the GDPR where, but the opposite, but where the GDPR applies to European Union citizens wherever they are. So it applies to US companies. So the, similar for the Australian law, law you know, it, it applies to any Australian data. And so you can imagine there are many tech companies in the U.S. that do hold Australian data. And so that is how these laws, that's why it's so important to think about these laws as not just staying within their own borders. They impact you know, within, within a global economic environment. It impacts companies globally that are that have any kind of services or, pro, or products with those countries. And so it's interesting seeing that. And then I think that diffusion on, a, on the aspect is one hand, but we're also seeing starting to see is more of a criminal underground as well popping up for encrypted phones and encrypted services. So you know it just gets to the point that even if we make it illegal for those specific national security reasons, criminals will still have access to encryption and are right. still going to make their own encrypted technologies and their own phones. I think it was Vice had a really good article on how criminals had created their, I think the MPC was a company that made their own encrypted phones and were using those for their own communications. And so we could go against, you know, as, as governments go against companies that are trying to work within the, the illicit economy, we'll be basically hurting those that are following the law and helping those that are not.
1: What's the response from cryptographers? Are they throwing their, their arms up and saying, you know, we're not there yet? <laughs>
0: Uh, Yeah, um, so the best analogy I've heard is, uh, and I I wish I could remember. There have been various comments from cryptographers who are are saying that they now know how climate scientists feel. Ah, (laughs) Interesting, right? And so I I think that's a nice analogy. Like it's a nice way to make it, you know, to make it more solid for folks who aren't embedded in the weeds of cryptography. Because when you're at a point where the climate scientists are basically, you know, ninety-nine point whatever percent in agreement. That's how the cryptographers are as far as encryption and backdoors and whether that's the realm of the possible. And by the realm of the possible, meaning you're making sure that there would be some way to do that without creating a vulnerability that others could exploit.
1: Right. Right. So
0: I think that's a good analogy. That's the one that I've started to lean on.
1: Yeah, I, I like it a lot. What other things are you covering in the RSA talk?
0: Basically, we're going to be walking through uh, a little bit of, you know, on the on differences now than it was you know, a couple of decades ago. And again, it really is we're seeing democracy decline across the globe. You know, the 90s was at the really the forefront of democracy starting to spread quite a bit more with the you know, fall of the Berlin Wall, fall of the Soviet Union, and so forth. You know, democracy was on the rise, and so those battles were going on under an era when democracy was really starting to gain traction. Today, we're seeing you know, the decline for several years in a row of democracy across the globe, and then on top of that, and if you look at Freedom House as the, uh, the freedom of the net every year that has a variety of metrics for evaluating how, how free the internet is country by country. And it's the ninth year in a row of decline in that area. And part of that decline, you know, encryption is just, is one component. So it, you know I don't want not everything in the entire world will rest on encryption, but it is a core component of safeguarding the data. And it's foundational for securing the data. And the weakening of encryption is used in combination with other kinds of aspects for data for information control that the generally authoritarian regimes are using which goes in combination with some of the hacks that they're doing, the, um, the disinformation, um, even creating some of the hardware discussions that we've increasingly been seeing that are being used for surveillance. It's, just, it's part of the broader authoritarian playbook. So we'll talk a little bit about how encryption fits within that, but then go you know, case by case across the globe, just talking about what's going on. And I think I think a lot of people, again, I think we'll assume that it's something that's only going on in you know China and Russia, or that the DOJ may be talking about a little bit now, but will never happen in the US. But it really is gaining momentum. Um, the United Nations has done a report on this a couple, actually, over the last few years, and has noted that since 2015, there really has been a global rise of anti-encryption policies being passed across the globe.
1: How do nations enforce this? It was something is as, <laughs> as readily available right. as encryption. How do you crack down on it?
0: Yeah, the banning of encryption is sort of a, a nice way to summarize what's going on. But the reality is yeah, so obviously the devil is in the details. And so what really, though, they're trying to get is the access to data. And so they're not going to be cracking down on it across everyone and, and anyone who's using it. Although, actually, I'll, sit, I'll go back to that in a second. Um, yeah. What they're generally doing is when they want access to certain data, they, they target that company and, rec- and, and mandate getting access to it. So it's very targeted as opposed to opportunistic and widespread. However, (laughs) that said... There are cases during the attempted coup in Turkey a couple of years ago. They ended up detaining citizens uh, for using ByLock, which was a popular messaging app in Turkey. And so anyone who's even using it, they associate them with being uh, behind the coup and were detaining mm-hmm. them. And so that's the kind of world <laughs> that we're living in now. That I think that doesn't get covered very much. And uh, you know, on the one hand, don't want to be you know knowing you know, the sky is falling and saying everything is bad. But I think we need to be realistic about what is going on across the globe, so that we in the U.S. can make policies to counter that. And ideally, be you know that be that. Um, symbol of how to actually do this right as far as protecting data and privacy and create a counter framework that others will want to emulate as opposed to this other you know, digital authoritarianism model that is spreading.
1: And in your mind, what does that look like? If, if we could build an ideal system here, a model for the world, what would it look like?
0: Yeah, that would be nice. And you know, I, One, I wish I had all the answers, so I do not. And there are probably a lot of other people who could really provide the details on this. But for me, one core component is the federal privacy legislation. And so a lot of privacy legislation has cybersecurity components into it. And so in general, I look at them more so as data protection regulations. Uh, that's what a lot of them are, such as the GDPR. What I would like us to do is, one, learn the lessons from GDPR for what's worked and what hasn't actually implement some of those under more of an American design, but I think you know a lot of these talk about security safeguards um, within their laws, and so it'd be great to include that and specify encryption, you know, which is you know, relate to this conversation. But I would like it to be you know, much broader. I mean, we're at a point where we actually do have some momentum for a uh, federal data privacy law. And you know, both the Republicans and Democrats over the last few weeks both introduced one, which means, you know, one that both both parties are actually interested in something and interesting and in hopefully solving this problem. So right. that alone, I think, is enormous given this time um, in our country. But it's also, you know, a lot of corporations have started over the last you know, year and year and a half have really switched their mood on and their stance away from self-regulation towards some level of regulation. And so a lot of that stems from California's law that comes to into effect uh, in early January um, but also, you know, points to there's a growing shift within the American population wanting a federal privacy law, and so there are a range of factors that are are getting debated, and you know, hopefully, will be included that all point to the notion of individual data sovereignty. So the digital authoritarianism really talks about cyber sovereignty a lot, which is government mandated control of the internet and access to data, and so I'd like to see one that focuses on individual data sovereignty and greater individual control over their data. And so that could be everything from you providing the technical tools that are more usable and understandable, consumable for users to protect their data, um, but also gets into the legal aspects such as the terms of service that are just way too long for anyone to even understand what they're um, signing up for. It gets into opting in versus opting out and giving the individual greater control, various kinds of repercussions that may happen if corporations fail to adhere to the law. And I think a lot of that falls under the data breach notification, which tends to fall under, under these kind of laws and specifying timeframes and for what must be provided. But obviously, all that needs to be in my, um, ideally for me, would be influenced by both the private sector and those who are the ones that are trying to do the right thing and, and protect the data with the, with the realities of how hard that actually is. But then also, I'd love the security community to get more involved. I mean, I think we generally look at it as a privacy community is, is general, generally for broad stereotypes generally is the, is the, are the lawyers and the security community tends to be more of the technologists. This is increasingly changing, and there's a growing overlap, which I love to see. I think that's going to keep going on. Um, but I love to see influence from both of those communities to help shape this as well, so that solutions don't emerge that either are not technologically feasible, or maybe just impossible for, for companies to enforce on a, on a privacy side. And so we need to find that good balance. And that's, I think, that the nice thing about in the U.S. as far as the fact that we haven't had one yet, I think is we have a somewhat of a second mover advantage to learn from what other countries have done and has worked. Um, while also having a, a broader debate across our our country about what should be collected, what shouldn't be, what should what should individuals know, and. I think the more that we keep seeing of data being collected that we didn't really think was being collected by we, you know, we as the American population, the more interest there's going to be in helping ensure that the whatever privacy law is working on focuses both on what's collected, how it's used, how it's protected, and how we can empower individuals to better protect their data and incentivize corporations to also do the same. To end on a positive note, which I think <laughs> is always nice to do, as almost dire as it may seem as we hear day after day of all the data that that is out there and you know as the encryption debate tends to take higher precedent um, in our own, you know, in the United States, there really is a strong movement both amongst people, but across you know, some governments as well that are, that are pushing for data protection regulations and encryption is going to be a, a core component of it. And so, you know, the EU already has that, you know, they've mentioned, they've, the GDPR, there've been fines that have been issued to companies for not properly protect, protecting their data. And in those fines, they, they note that they didn't use encryption. Hmm. And so the GDPR model as the, the core data protection model that's out there in the globe right now, until we hopefully find, you know, create our own, that that Model is spreading. And so, in order to be compliant with the European law, many other countries are also passing similar laws. And so right after the EU passed through a law, Japan basically formed a, an agreement with, with the EU and they basically became compliant with one another. And so that so similar protections are in Japan. Uh, in 2020, Brazil has a new law coming into effect for general law and data protection, very similar to the EU's law, a little bit more specific in some areas. And so we are seeing sort of this counter movement, and actually the, the greatest example that I can think of is so in Ecuador, which has bought a lot of surveillance technology from China. As earlier this year, uh, that there was a basically a data leak of almost every of data on almost all of their citizens. Mm. Immediately following that, there was a rush within their government to try and pass a data protection regulation. And so those kind of it's it's almost that duality. I think is really interesting. Where on the one hand, you know, Ecuador is one of those countries that we place this section of leaning towards digital authoritarianism. With this leak, they're now you know, the pendulum is swinging in favor of data protection. And so I think that we've seen so much of a decline in one way that there really is a counterforce starting to grow. And so you know, if we can all you know, do our part to help help that counterforce grow and provide those tools and provide the laws and the capabilities to help protect data, I think that that's where a lot of interesting work will be going on over the next year. And so while it's important to be realistic about what's going on um, and, and the global attacks on, on data um, and privacy, I think it's really important to notice that there is this movement growing and to help do what we can. And to help keep that movement growing and fight for greater data protection and privacy within the, the various laws and technologies that we have.
1: All right, Ben, what do you think? I like her sense of optimism,
2: first of all. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's often easy to become cynical when many Western countries are trying to gain back doors to encrypted devices uh, and encrypted systems. And I think she offers some hope for people who are supportive of data privacy, which is always good. One thing that really interested me about her interview with you is her explicit connection between the general decline of democracy and these efforts to Undermine data privacy. And, you know, I think that's a really apt and important connection to make. Uh, and that's something that was compelling about her comparing the landscape now to 20 years ago mm-hmm. when, in the wake of the fall of the Soviet Union, democracy was sort of on the upswing. Mm-hmm. You had all these former Soviet republics who were figuring out how to democratize. And unfortunately, we're now in an era where we seem to be sliding back the other way mm. uh, in a lot of circumstances. And I think. She's talking about these efforts to create these back doors as emblematic of that larger trend. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was a very compelling point. I also love the analogy between cryptographers and climate scientists. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's a good
2: one. We know what we're talking about. People should be listening to us. Mm -hmm. And the opinion among people who are in the know is universal. It's just people on the
1: outside who think differently about it. Right. It strikes me that with math in particular, that's not just your opinion. Math is, is, yeah. (laughs) I learned a long time ago
2: you cannot answer a question in a math test by, you know, stating my opinion is X. (laughs) Right. As she said, that's just not the way it works. (laughs) Right. So Uh, I thought that was very compelling as well. Uh, Mm -hmm. She's a strong advocate for data privacy. And if you happen to make it out to San Francisco for that conference, please go to her presentation.
1: Visit NETSKOPE.com. The Caveat Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our thanks to the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security for their participation. You can learn more at mdchhs.com. Our coordinating producers are Kelsey Bond and Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening.